out of the box. Meet people through their music on FBI. here bringing you out of the box this week a show where for one whole hour we delve into one guest's record collection talking about the music they love and how it's shaped their life we're coming to you from Gadigal land right now I'd like to acknowledge Gadigal elders past and present and recognize the despicable and ongoing colonial violence committed all across this country Redfern slash Waterloo, where the FBI radio studio is based and also where I live and work, is a site of immense significance for many First Nations peoples. It's the birthplace of black theatre in this country. It's the birthplace of so many other First Nations-led and run organisations, many of which still provide critical services to their communities to this day. And it's a place with strong and ongoing traditions of resistance and resilience. Sovereignty was never ceded. Wherever you're tuning in from right now, all across so-called Sydney, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This week on Out of the Box, we're joined by someone whose stunning record was an album of the week here at FBI Radio last year upon its release. You may know her as a musician, a DJ and radio host, but she's also a dreamer, a festival curator, a human rights lawyer. She can do it all. I'm so stoked to be joined by Nabiha Iqbal. Thanks so much for swinging by FBI Radio. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's great to be here. I literally just arrived in Sydney. (laughs) You touched down, now you're here. (laughs) Nabiha, let's wind back to the very beginning. You grew up in London in a big family. What role did music play in your household when you were a kid? Um, Not... Not a massive role, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like, yeah, my parents had this crazy record collection. And they, they always used to play like all this cool music all the time. Um, it wasn't like that at all. But my parents were really adamant about me and my sisters um, kind of pursuing a lot of extracurricular activities. And music was a huge part of that. So, you know, we all played instruments, we all had music lessons. I used to go to music school every Saturday. So I guess like the sound of us practicing in the house is probably one of the kind of quintessential childhood musical memories of mine. And apart from that, I mean, my parents weren't like completely unmusical. They do did like listening to stuff. I mean, I have memories of them listening to old Pakistani music and listening to like the kind of London local Asian radio station which had a lot of old Indian and Pakistani music on it so yeah I guess it was just that and then also Michael Jackson (laughs) (laughs) which we'll get more into in a moment what was the first instrument that you played well I don't know if it's the same in Australia but in England the instrument that every child starts with is the recorder Mm, and you just everybody starts learning it at school And so, yeah, I was no different. Um, But then I I really loved it and I took it quite seriously. And I used to play desk and and treble and I was in the recorder ensemble at school. Um, And then after that, I took up the flute. That was, I'd say, my main instrument that I did. Like, I I pursued that quite quite a lot and did it up to grade six. And then um, the piano and guitar started with classical guitar. And then obviously 
turned more to like the electric guitar when I became a teenager. Um, yeah, those were the instruments I learned until I went to university and then I picked up as part of my degree in ethnomusicology. My main performance instrument was the sitar. So I began learning that and um, and we had to learn like other types of music as part of the degree as well. So I had to learn gamelan, Indonesian, which is like the Indonesian um, metallophone percussive ensemble. And we learned Javanese and Balinese. And then I also um, did classical Turkish music and tried to learn how to play the ney, which is the Turkish reed flute. And it was so difficult. And after three months of like not even being able to make a sound, my teacher was like, just play your normal flute. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit of a fail. Brutal. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, those few years of being at SOAS was very like eye opening um, experience of like being exposed to loads of different types of music and instruments. But yeah, that's in a nutshell, um, the instruments that I learned how to play. <laughs> so many. That's amazing. Do you remember how you got into like listening to music? Yeah, Michael Jackson. My, that was that's my earliest musical memory and my first musical obsession and he's still my absolute favorite and um I have very early memories of watching this like VHS tape of him basically my parents had um taped this Michael Jackson documentary off the TV and I watched it so many times that the tape broke and so the, and then I was like in a really bad mood because I couldn't watch it anymore. So I had to go out and buy me another Michael Jackson kind of like tape. It was like a documentary. And that one I remember so well. I used to watch it every day. And, um, you know, obviously when you're like one or two years old, you're not really thinking about like Michael Jackson as like this kind of profoundly, um, you know, talented all-rounder entertainer or anything you're just thinking about you're just feeling the music and looking at his outfits and his dance moves and the way that you know like the crowds just went crazy you know you you pick up on all those things even as a young kid and for me like no one really comes close to what he did in terms of like transcending geographical and political and social boundaries and just giving the music to the people and being so in touch with it you know you could tell like he was just receiving that music on a higher level from a higher place and yeah he's still as much of an inspiration to me now as he was when I was like three years old or whatever. The first track that you've picked for us today is the iconic Billie Jean. What is it about this song specifically that moves you? Well it was hard to pick one Michael Jackson song but then if I was you know then I thought okay I need to pick one that kind of reflects my early musical memories and Billie Jean is definitely one of those tracks that stands out from my childhood, um, you know, along with like, I guess, Smooth Criminal. I really remember that, the video and everything. But I've, the reason why I picked Billie Jean is because um, a few years ago, I gave a lecture on the history of 20th century recorded music at the Tate Modern, which is a big gallery in London. And as part of my research and the presentation, one of the examples that I used was Billie Jean and you know you play like the first two seconds of that track which on paper is a very generic kick drum and snare beat that exists in so many songs all around the world but like it doesn't matter 
who listens to it, you play them two seconds of that song and they know exactly what that song is. And that is like the magic that was created around Michael Jackson through his music. And I was really, um, yeah, looking into the production and creation of that song. And he was working with um, a studio engineer called Bruce Swedian who built like a special platform and kind of like casing around each of the drums to to create a really distinguished sound. So even though it's a kick and a snare, but you know it's the Billie Jean kick and snare. And uh, when I was learning about that, it just made me think a lot more about like the attention to detail that like, you know, Michael Jackson or Quincy, Quincy Jones or whoever else he was working with in the studio were paying towards the music and the actual like carving and sculpting of the sound. And for me as a music producer, um, I found that really inspirational. So these are obviously like more recent thoughts. But then I also think back to being a kid and watching the Billie Jean video on TV and trying to dance like Michael Jackson and just, yeah, just the whole like um, kind of like iconic persona of him and all the different layers that make that up. So that's why I picked this track. You're on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 <laughs> as picked by Nabiha Iqbal. Here's Michael Jackson with Billie Jean. to Out of the Box. I'm Tanya Ali and we're joined by musician, DJ and broadcaster Nabiha Iqbal. Nabiha, music wasn't always the one and only path carved out for you, which we'll get into more in a moment. Uh, but in saying that, and as we were just talking about, your first degree was in fact music related. You studied history and ethnomusicology. What drew you to those areas of study? Well, history was my favorite subject at school. So I already knew that I wanted to study that at university and that's the degree that I'd applied for. Um, and I knew that I really wanted to go to SOAS, um, which is a very like specialized college in the University of London. And it stands for the School of Oriental and African Studies. And it was actually originally set up as a colonial institution for people to study the British Empire in more detail but now you know it's got a reputation as being most sort of like progressive left-wing um, higher education institution in the UK and it's the only place where you can go to learn about topics from a non-eurocentric perspective you know and for me it's like I wanted to learn about history as it happened in the rest of the world not mm -hmm. just about how empire made Britain rich and powerful and great I wanted to learn about what what it meant for everywhere else and especially being of Pakistani heritage as well. And like the fact that I'm born in England is a direct consequence of the British Empire. So, you know, you have like a more of a personal affinity towards it. And I didn't actually apply to do ethnomusicology, but in the first week of university, there were there were some special events that were put on by the ethnomusicology department. And I remember seeing this performance by a Kora player uh, and the chorus is a West African harp. I'd never seen 
or heard anything like it before had no idea what it was at that moment but it just like did something to me where I was watching this guy playing it and the music was so beautiful and his and his singing was so beautiful and you know it was like a completely new instrument that I'd never could have like imagined or anything and it just had um at that like exact moment I was like oh my god I need to learn everything about this and I left and went up to the music department and found the head of ethnomusicology and knocked on her door and I was like you don't know who I am and I didn't apply for your course but I just saw the chorus performance and I really want to know all about it so please let me on and that's literally how it was and um you know she was actually also the West African music expert so she was probably quite happy to have um, a new student in her office like gushing about the chorus <laughs> so she let me on the course and that's how that's how it started and I feel like maybe if I hadn't been at that performance in the first week then maybe my whole path might have gone quite differently God, that is amazing, literally right place at the right time. Yeah, for sure. Across undergrad and postgrad, how was the university experience for you more broadly and how did it kind of, I guess, impact your creative, like, visions? Mm. Well, I mean, my undergraduate degree was in London and I'm a Londoner, born and bred, and I and you know, I felt I felt like I wanted to stay in London for university because it is really like the kind of biggest, busiest, most exciting place you could be in the UK. And uh, that whole experience was was so fun. It was so fun, obviously making loads of new friends, but also being like right in the middle of the city. Um, you know, I was I was a real geek at university. I had like the nickname Library Girl. <laughs> because um, I used to go in the library from 9am to 11pm basically every day because I just wanted to work really hard and get first and um, yeah that was it really but also at the same time it was quite an interesting time for London in terms of the music scene and I was really getting into more like alternative experimental noise kind of music and there used to be loads of gigs on all the time and a lot of house shows actually so I have memories of that and that's also when I got into my first band, which was a noise band, the two of us. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I found some of that music on my old iTunes recently oh and it's God. really abrasive sounding, but it's cool. And then um, for my uh, postgraduate, like my master's degree, I actually went to Cambridge and studied African history. And Cambridge and SOAS, they're kind of like two polar opposites in terms of like, um, I'd say the university experience because on one hand you've got SOAS which is like really lefty it's full of like quite sort of I don't know you know that kind of like university student idealist idealistic activism energy which once you get out of the bubble you're like oh, guys yeah <laughs> chill out <laughs> but at the time you're like yeah 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 like, you're so in it exactly and then Cambridge was you know Oxford and Cambridge they're still the most conservative um, traditional academic institutions of the UK so in terms of like the vibe it was very different mm. but at the same time I was in a city that was like you know that city was built around learning and academia and you can feel it and you, the resources that you had around you were just incredible like you know so many libraries everything you need it's right there just the whole place is set up for you to study and learn um, my degree was an MPhil, so it was quite isolating because it was more of a research master's. And so I think going from like, you know, like being a bit of a party girl in London out all the time to then being in like a very, very quiet 
surrounding, that was a bit of a shock to the system. But it was a great experience as well, yeah. And I focused on South African history. Um, and, I, and I went to Cape Town to do research for my, for my um, thesis as well. And that was very interesting. And um, yeah, South Africa for, just became one of my sort of favorite places and one of the countries that I'm most interested in. I've been back quite a few times. So yeah, both were great <laughs> in, that, in, their, in their own ways. You also had a brief career as a human rights lawyer, which is no mean feat. Was there a time where you saw human rights law as potentially your life's work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I never actually planned to do music full time. Um, it was always like a kind of pipe dream in my mind that I never spoke to anyone about. And I was always doing music on the side of other things. So, for example, like, you know, growing up and playing musical instruments and then getting a bit older and doing uni, just making music and hosting parties and learning how to DJ and all of these things sort of like on the side. Um, so it was more of like a hobby. And I mean, maybe also you can relate or anyone who's got like ethnic parents, like when you tell them that you're going to try and do music as a career, they'll be like, uh, no. <laughs> can you not, please? So, I mean, for my parents, they thought they were going to have a barrister daughter because, you know, I did like, yeah, I studied law and then got called to the bar. And then like a year after that, I was like, actually, I'm going to pursue music because that's when things were gathering more momentum in that side of my life. And they were like, no. <laughs> but I think they've finally come around to it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I love law as well. And especially working in human rights. And after I got called to the bar, I went straight back out to South Africa. And I was working with a group of women's rights lawyers in Cape Town. And that was, um, yeah, it was a very deep experience. Because, I mean, doing women's rights in a country where there's so, which is like notorious for having so much violence against women and girls was really intense. And at the start, it was very difficult to deal with. Like it just makes you really upset everything that you're researching and all the cases that you're working on. But uh, it's weird how your mind then actually becomes a bit numb to it. And I guess it's just like a sort of survival mode of your brain because unless you become more hardy to it, you can't actually do the work because you're too like, you get, it makes you too emotional. So it was interesting to go through that transition. But then also being in South Africa, it's like on one side I was doing all this legal human rights work and on the other side I was, you know, going out a lot with my friends and um, a lot of them were really in the music scene. So going to parties that they hosted and DJing at them and also starting to like make my own music productions. I saw two very different sides to life in South Africa. Mm. Yeah, I... I it's just one of those places, I think, where it's just like, yeah, it's like it feels very dichotomous in in every sense. But there's, yeah, it's an amazing place at the same time. Yeah, we're going to get into this kind of parallel where you know music was taking off for you in a moment. But first, tell me about your relationship with At the Drive In. Oh yeah, so one of the tracks that I've picked. Um, is One Arm Scissor by At The Drive-In. Absolutely, like, amazing track. And um, I was just thinking about those kind of, like, formative musical years as a teenager. I feel like the music that you listen to as a teen is the, kind of, is the stuff that shapes you the most. And also, like, those memories are so visceral, they're always going to be with you. And for me, um, you know, 
when I became a teenager, I was starting to get more into like alternative music, guitar music. I used to, I went to my first gig when I was 13 and then literally every weekend I would just be out at, at shows, a lot of like punk and metal shows. And um, yeah, so I didn't, I mean, I could have picked something from like that kind of initial era of being like 13 or 14 and like something that was very sort of ska punk. But then, yeah, I decided to pick at the drive-in because um, I remember seeing them live when I was 16 at a big festival in England and that was still one of the most fun weekends of my life. Um, and just that the sound that's encompassed in this track, it's like very of that specific era, you know, when there was a lot of this like angry, but also melodic guitar music. And that's one of the things that I appreciate most about this band. And then also the Mars Volta, which is a spin-off. So good. Look, it's not every day you'll hear at the drive-in on FBI Radio, and you can thank Nabiha Iqbal for this. She's my guest on Out of the Box today. This is One Arm Scissor on FBI 94.5 at the drive-in with one arm scissor as chosen by your guest on Out of the Box today, Nabiha Iqbal. Nabiha, just before that track, we were talking about your career as a human rights lawyer uh, and talking about kind of how in parallel music had started to take off for you at the same time as you were embarking on this career. Uh, we touched on this a little bit. You were surrounded by a really incredible music scene in London. I only just found out that you're the voice of Lemonade by the wonderful Sophie, which has absolutely blown my mind. And you released your first tracks as a producer under the moniker Throwing Shade. Take me back. How did it feel to be creating in London in the mid 2010s? <laughs> yeah, like now you say mid 2010s, it's like, yeah, that was a specific era. <laughs> Even though in my head it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but I'm like, oh my God, actually it was. Um, no, it was such a good time for London, you know. London's changed. I mean, London will always be amazing. People, you know, you always hear a lot of people like talking about, oh, things change too fast and there's all these good venues and they've gone and it's harder to do things and the city's more expensive and those conversations they'll just always be there I think and they probably always have been there I'm sure people in the 1950s and 60s were also saying the same thing I mean and people say the same thing here like it's a constant I feel like it's a real uh, a global thing in big cities exactly but that's literally like the definition I think of a big city but one thing that will never change is that the energy you get from a place like London and that will always be there. So when I think back to that time of like, yeah, the 2010s, um, there was just like a lot of really, that was actually a good time because it was before a lot of like the cool clubs closed down, especially there were a lot of spots we used to go out in central London that don't exist anymore. And um, people were putting on a lot of shows themselves. And that's how I started DJing as well because a group of my friends, they used to put on these parties in laundrettes um, and it started because one of my friends was living above a laundrette and he spoke to the landlord and just asked him if we could do a party in there one night and the guy agreed to it for some crazy reason. <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, the first time I DJed was in there and 
people really loved it. So then the guys were like, oh, you need to play next time and next time. And then, and that was also pre, it was pre Instagram and things like that. So it was really like those parties were just word of mouth and then people who came the first time loved it. And the next time they brought their friends and that's where I first started DJing. And at the same time, I was just like messing around on GarageBand, trying to figure out how to make weird edits of tracks and things like that. And, um, and my other friends were the same. We were just kind of like all playing each other our music and helping each other. And it's when, yeah, a lot of people from that era that I was friends with, like they're all doing really well with music. And I, I actually went to New York for the first time in my life in 2010. And that trip was really, uh, it was like a kind of a bit of a watershed moment for me because it's the first time I was experiencing the energy of New York City, which is like London on steroids. And the music scene there at the time as well was being, you know, there, there's, um, there's this club night called Ghetto Gothic, which then afterwards became really famous. It was run by a girl called Venus X. And I remember going to that by myself uh, whilst I was there. And, you know, there was like, uh, Arca was there, I think Kalela was there, um, the um, Asma from Nguzi Guzi, they were like that duo, they were both there, Mickey Blanco, you know, it was like all of that crew were there because they were all like a friendship group. And this was before they all became massive, even Fatima Al Qadiri. So, and I, I was already following their music on SoundCloud and stuff. So I was like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe it. But it was still really underground at that, at that moment. And I remember, um, going back and writing like a Facebook message to all my friends back in London that same night when I got back from the club night and I was like guys the energy of this night I just went to it was amazing and it really was actually like a very inspirational moment for me because I was like we should like try and put on more nights ourselves in London and we did and like that followed that sort of alternative electronic chopped and screwed like weird vibe and um you mentioned Sophie, yeah, like Sophie was one of my best friends. We met, I think, I think we met in 2011, yeah. And and became really close. Um, she helped me so much with like um, teaching me about music production and just encouraging me and then also asked me to do vocals on some of her tracks. Uh, and I remember hearing Lemonade for the first time and it was quite a while before it actually got released. And I just was thinking, wow, this track is so cool. And then she wanted me to <laughs> record the vocals <laughs> for it. And that was, yeah, it was amazing. It was just, when you're in it, you don't realize. And then afterwards, actually now, you're the first person who's asked me that question about like, oh, talk about that era. Like it like has a kind of like whole. Mm. And now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, actually it was a very special time. and. Yeah, there were a lot of cool musicians and producers just starting out. Yeah, and I think the impact that that era has had on music now is so clear as well, yeah. For sure, I mean, um, especially with Sophie, I think because Sophie was really in her own lane in terms of pushing things forward with not only electronic sound, but also pop music as well. And you can hear a lot of people trying to emulate that same sound. And I guess it's flattering really, because it shows like how much impact she had. It's just sad that it had to stop so mm. suddenly, but um, maybe she just did everything she needed to do. I mean, yeah, her impact is like, yeah, incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. You are listening to FBI Radio 94.5 on digital radio and streaming at fbiradio.com. This is Out of the Box. I'm Tanya Ali, and we're joined by musician, broadcaster, and DJ, amongst many other things, Nabiha Iqbal. 
Nabiha, you've chosen On Gallop by Joanna Newsom as your next track. Tell me why. Joanna Newsom, when I first discovered her, I got really obsessed. And um, maybe that, it was when I was in sixth form. Do you call it sixth form here? Uh, no, is that know, like, like the end of school? 12, yeah. yeah. Like 12 and 13. Yeah. And um, before that, I was listening to a lot of like way more intense guitar y, you know, like angrier metal and and like punk sort of music and then but then also moving more into electronic stuff and then Joanna Newsom was quite different from anything that I'd paid attention to beforehand um but I got so obsessed with her first album The Milk Eyed Mender and I know it's a very uh especially her voice it's like you either love it or hate it and I remember playing it really loud in my room and my mum was always like can you just turn it down a bit um but that was like a seminal record for me because it it introduced me to at that moment there was like this whole freak folk scene blowing up in the UK but also especially in America so there were artists like her but also Devendra Banhar and Bonnie Prince Billy and um even like you know Arcade Fire that was when they were first starting out and put out their first record an artist like Beirut loads of people really and so yeah that was uh that opened a whole new musical world for me starting with with that like the Joanna Newsom album was like the stepping stone and it was probably like the first big transition for me musically as well in the types of things that I was listening to so it was also a moment of realization that you can be into quite a lot of quite varied types of music and still appreciate them and that was when I was 18 or 18 yeah or 19 18 17 or 18 when I started listening to that I saw her perform live maybe three or four times and then every single time is just amazing like you know just makes you cry because she's so good at the harp and her, her voice it just really takes you different to a different place and yeah so that would that will always be like one of the most important records for me this place is damp and ghostly box on FBI Radio. My name's Tanya Ali and our guest this week is British musician, DJ, producer and curator Nabiha Iqbal. Nabiha, as we mentioned earlier on, you haven't always made music under your birth name. In 2017, you left your Throwing Shade moniker behind and started making more guitar-centric music, releasing your debut album as Nabiha Iqbal, Weighing of the Heart. What was your main like thought process behind behind that 
but it was just basically me starting to think about what I was doing and maybe a more in a more like profound way actually and just thinking about identity and the space I was occupying and what it actually meant and to be honest I wasn't really thinking about those sort of questions that deeply beforehand the throwing shade moniker was just something that I picked for fun honestly when I was at uni and just DJing putting on parties with my friends so um I never I never thought like okay that's going to turn into something like on a bigger scale and um yeah in those like first few years of beginning on NTS and my first record coming out where you know both things began in 2013 for me I started getting messages from people especially ethnic minority people both girls and guys just saying that they really appreciated what I was doing and that they found it a source of inspiration because they didn't see a lot of Asian people or brown people doing this doing what I was doing it and so that's really the thing that acted as like the catalyst for me having these thoughts and thinking more seriously about it and then also you know when you do think about it you just realize that actually yeah and like the kind of mainstream music and chart music you never see anyone who's got a name that's not like a sort of generic English name or when you look at festival lineups or big club lineups it's the same as well and then you can go one step further and it's like oh how many Asians are on are presenting on like the big radio stations or playing at the big festivals and like literally there's MIA and Zayn Malik and who else mm. so well yeah and then you and then it becomes like more real and you just like wow okay this is quite a serious thing there is definitely like a glass ceiling slash glass walls all around you <laughs> <laughs> um and then it just felt I don't know also like when you're creating work it's a journey like I guess it's a lifelong journey that you're on just figuring stuff out for yourself and so then I was just reaching that point where I was like you know what I just want to be upfront about who I am and um where I'm from and and my name and my identity and all of those things so I just felt like using my real name was the first stepping stone towards that and it felt it was funny because it actually felt like a difficult decision mm. some of my friends were like you know you might not get like booked as much because people are going to think oh she's got like a weird name and you know but they have a point and maybe yeah. it had that impact I don't know but I'm really happy I made that decision and so far so good I'd say 100% I mean I think it you know it changes the way that you're perceived before someone's even heard your music, I guess. But yeah, you know, there's no harm in that. Exactly, because really. you want to get it to a point where it doesn't, exactly. where people are just like, okay, cool, that's her name, whatever. Like, let me hear her music, or you know, they don't, they don't care. Like, if someone's called Emma or something, like, I don't care because it's not, it's, it's not a thing. It's just yeah. so standardized. So I'm just, you know, it would be good to get to a point where people's names and the way they look doesn't bear too much sort of like preconceptions but I don't know maybe we're still really a long way off that hey maybe one day yeah. <laughs> I'm just chipping away at it yeah. on a very small scale <laughs> I do remember when Weighing of the Heart first came out how genuinely revolutionary it felt as a young Pakistani woman myself to see and hear a fellow Pakistani woman on guitar making the type of music that I dreamed of making. So thank you for that. Um, and, you know, I know we've just spoken about that dire lack of representation, um, but were there any 
particular influences that you have looked to over your career? Well, whenever people ask ask me that question, like what were your influences? And if I'm really honest about it, all the influences are just are men. Mm. Because, I mean, all the music that I loved growing up, it was like a lot of bands, a lot of guitar music. And, it, and you know, it was people like... The Cure or Jimi Hendrix or, you know, when I was younger, it was definitely like Oasis when I was like eight or nine years old. And then it was all like all the, a lot of like punk bands and hardcore stuff and I don't know, Bob Dylan and people like that. And then within all of that, then yeah, you do have people like um, Joanna Newsom, who I listened to loads and Bjork. Grimes was actually a massive influence Mm. and inspiration for me. Um, But overall, yeah, it's just like all the, the big guns of music and they all happen to be men (laughs) but that's just how it is and their music is amazing too and it's just like I guess it's just about exposure really and um like you know there's not a lot of women instrumentalists who are regarded on the same level Mm. as male instrumentalists you know so for example if you're trying to think of like people who are famous for their capability of playing the guitar or the piano the first people that will come into your head is probably guys Mm. But there's so many amazing female guitarists out there as well. And they have been like throughout the last hundred years or whatever. But you just don't hear about them that much. And it's not really a surprise. That's why I did a whole NTS radio show dedicated to female guitarists. Because I also for myself wanted to find out more. I mean, I already knew Elizabeth Cotton. She was one of my favorites. Um, But I discovered so many other cool ones like Emily Remler. She's an amazing jazz guitarist. She died quite young from a heroin overdose. Um, yeah there's so many once you get but then once you get into it you actually realise actually there's so many people Mm. but no one ever really like gave them the recognition they deserved but that's changing now with the internet and social media and all of those things we're really moving in the right direction so hopefully we won't have that problem for too much longer (laughs) from 2017 to now how has the experience of being a brown woman making guitar music changed um I don't know. I don't know because, uh, you know, I just make my music without really thinking about anything else. Like all I'm thinking about is like the kind of creative output and and it feels like, I guess anyone who's a music artist, when you're making music, it feels like it's something that you need to do. For me, making this album was actually extremely difficult. There were a lot of setbacks and there were definitely some moments where I felt so low, like I've never felt before and I just felt like almost that I would never be able to finish making the music and then now now I'm at the other end and it's all making sense to me like it was worth it but um you know people see the front facing side of it like they they see your Instagram and they see that I'm touring so much and they see people really supporting the music and um tell me like wow you're doing so well and all these things but no one but, you know, that maybe I should start showing more of the behind the scenes stuff, but it's way less glamorous and it's way more intense. So, like, you know, the actual amount of work and determination it takes to, like, put a tour together and do the traveling and, like, the financial commitment and um, dealing with the label and everything else that comes with the music industry, which is still really white male dominated and... I mean, I haven't really had a manager up till now. I'm just doing everything myself. So it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of difficult moments. So when you ask me like, how has it changed? I'm not really sure. 
because it's always it all it still feels like an uphill struggle mm. um especially there's some moments where it's like you feel like the people that you're working with should be a bit more understanding um and you kind of question like oh do you speak to other artists that maybe are different from me in the same way or mm. not you get those moments but um i don't dwell on it too much because i'm just just trying to do my own thing and not let any of that negativity get in the way that's also another hard thing to do because you have to be quite mentally disciplined so i'd like to think that maybe with with this record it really feels like it's got a lot more exposure than any of my previous ones and it feels like it's reaching more people and people are so enthusiastic about it so perhaps you know that's helping in its own tiny way to like pave the way a little bit more for making making it feel better for people who you know other people who might be female ethnic minority guitar music makers let's see i don't know well you have to ask that question again in like five years <laughs> all right years. deal <laughs> <laughs> I am really fascinated by the next track that you've picked for us. It's, oh, it's actually more of an excerpt from a record and it's one that I'm totally unfamiliar with. Tell me about Palm Shaper by The Skaters. Palm Shaper is the album that this band called The Skaters um, released and it's from 2004 and I wanted to pick something really from that era that we've kind of discussed already in terms of like my memories of the like, yeah, mid 2000s going into the 2010s but i'd say like oh uh, you know after joanna newsome and getting into the whole like more folk music exploring new and old folk music the next step was me for me was getting more into um like really experimental stuff a lot of noise and drone music and things like that and so this band the skaters um there's the two guys james farrow and this other guy called spencer they used to look, play quite a lot they're from new york they we're always in London playing shows though and I remember speaking to James Ferrari quite a lot as well but just um you know seeing seeing an act like that for the first time can have like a very profound effect on you if you're open-minded to that kind of ex experimentation so um they were definitely a band that then shaped my musical education for that era and it was when I was listening to other acts like like Sunburnt Hand of the Man, Grouper, who else? This this crazy act called Pymathon that was like way like really intense noise music, like very industrial vibes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just so much stuff. And the and then also going seeking out like the very experimental music festivals that happened around the UK. And there was one that happened in Bristol. It was called Venn Festival, and it was really like offbeat stuff and but it was just so good and another one that happened in an old church in Cambridge I remember and it was called Palimpsest and yeah they just had like amazing lineups of all these acts that like were quite obscu obscure but you'd discover them at the gig and then you'd buy like all their records off the merch stand and and then follow them on like MySpace or whatever like um, which is such a special way to discover music it just stays with you forever exactly right? yeah, yeah exactly and like um, so yeah, this piece just reminds me of that whole era and it was quite formative because this is also around the time and then I was like, oh, I want to try and make music like this and me and my friend Julian started this noise duo we were called Of Four and we played a few gigs actually and it was just like, yeah, just like a lot of distortion and a lot of drone and stuff, but it was really fun.
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. For the past hour, we've had the pleasure of hanging out with Nabiha Iqbal and hearing some of her favorite tracks. Nabiha, there's so much that we could still cover. Uh, I'd love to spend a bit of time talking about your 2023 record, Dreamer, in a moment. But first, I want to talk about something else you did last year. In 2023, you were the guest director of Brighton Festival, the biggest arts multidisciplinary festival in the UK. And essentially, you got to kind of live out the dream, curating the festival across all art forms. You'd never curated something on that scale before. How did you approach such a mammoth task? I mean, first of all, I was just surprised that they even reached out to me to be the guest director because the previous directors include people like Brian Eno and Anish Kapoor and David <laughs> Shrigley. So I was like, uh, okay. You're in the big leagues now. <laughs> like, are you sure you want me to do this? But um, I mean, so in that sense, it was such an honor to be asked to take on that role. And um and yeah, it was just an amazing opportunity because, you know, over all the years of me making music and DJing, the other thing that I love doing is putting on my own events and just like creating a bit of a community around that. So just hosting club nights or talks or um, live music events where I invite artists who I'm really enthusiastic about to come and perform. And it's the same as well about like when I play people's new music on the radio and stuff and get yeah so just like garnering that sort of like community energy I think is so important and often we can feel maybe now as well with like in the social media area it's easy to feel like very competitive and territorial and like not wanting to share things with others or like doing things for yourself and I can I can see that I can feel that people have that and I just feel like it's never that that kind of approach is always counterproductive. So for me, like curating this festival is just this opportunity to bring in as many people as I could whose work I really admired, whether they were musicians or visual artists or um, authors or dancers, and to just like watch them do their like amazing talks or performances and like blow away the audiences and just have this month long celebration of just this creative community that I love so much of people that I've come across like over the years. So yeah, it was just like, it was an amazing experience and it would be great to do something like that again at some point. So, so special. And of course, not only did you do that last year, you also put out one of the albums of the year. Dreamer is so full of emotion. It began in lockdown in Karachi and you've been touring it for several months now. Has the way that you feel about the record changed from, you know, when you finished it in November 2022 to releasing it in April to now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just been... The I I I can't really um, talk like uh, so eloquently really about how I feel at the moment because I'm so in it and mm. I feel like I need to I need to process like all the experiences that I'm having now of touring the record and seeing people showing up to the shows and filling the room in places that I've never played in before, in countries I've never been to before. And it's just like the most insane, surreal, beautiful feeling, especially when I contrast it with the whole period that I went through of like trying to make this record. Mm. 
because it was really difficult and initially I'd been working on music for two years and then my I learned the hard way about backing up because I didn't back up and then my music studio got burgled and I lost everything and then I had to start again um but like it also in that time it's like I wanted to finish the album and then I broke my hand then I broke my foot then I was really sick I got really ill like the most ill I've ever been in my life but then and I felt really bad I felt really sad my friend died just a lot of things happened and like mentally I never mentally I always feel like I'm quite strong and just get things done and just you know do what I need to do but in that time I have for the first time like I felt so bad mm. and I was like okay this is that this was like a new thing but then also in the period I felt the happiest I've ever been because like I got married and and that was actually took me by surprise because I never thought about that I would ever really care about getting married and then actually when someone proposes to you it just unlocks this whole new level of like happiness and love mm. and I guess it's just the process the like kind of moment where someone's like you are like telling you how much they love you and how what, how they feel about you and when it's mutual the whole song dreamer is about that Like I said, it's like the only happy song I've made so far. But you know, it's just it's like I basically, in the whole period of making this album, experienced the most extreme emotions I've ever felt and the most extreme like physical situations I've been in as well. So now that I'm out the other end, I mean, the day I finished the album, I felt so strange. Like that kind of, you know, when you feel despondent, like the day you finish exams and you're like, what mm. do I do now? I don't yeah. need to revise. I don't need to like go <laughs> to uni, whatever. It's that kind of feeling because it'd been going on so long. And then you just have no idea what's going to happen. And I really feel that like whether you're a small artist or a big artist, like when you're releasing music, you actually have no idea where that record's going to go. Um, and that's how I felt. And I'd made most of the, uh, well, I'd made all the record by myself, mostly in the countryside, all alone. And I produced and wrote and recorded and engineered everything myself, except like four tracks have live drums on them. And for that, Remy Graves, who's actually been drumming with me this whole year as part of my band, they recorded the drums on the record. But apart from that, it was like a completely solo project. Wow. So then now to be in the stage where it's like, wow, you're just seeing it on its journey. It's just, uh, it makes it feel worthwhile and it makes it feel like, okay, it makes sense <laughs> now. Um, I feel like I'm, yeah, just reaping the reward of going through all that stuff. But then also I just feel really excited because it still feels like the beginning and it still feels like, even though the music's been out for eight months now, still having like a good ripple effect. And, you know, being here in Australia and performing live for the first time and just now playing in Melbourne like to the second biggest headline audience that I've ever performed to outside of London makes sense because London's my hometown. Mm. But then to turn up to the Nightcat in Melbourne and see it absolutely rammed and it just was like, I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing because that's actually the power of music. It's just mm. doing its own thing. So I feel really, really happy and grateful and thankful for all the people, whether it's like radio hosts like you or just like people listening at home, buying tickets to the show, buying the merch, just supporting the record. I'm so grateful to every single person because they're the ones who are making it happen. 
Nabiha, it has been so wonderful sharing space and tunes with you for the past hour. That's all for Out of the Box this week. My name is Tanya Ali and a massive thank you to your guest selector for this whole hour, the wonderful Nabiha Iqbal. You can catch Nabiha Iqbal live this Saturday, January 13, as part of Sydney Festival at Moonshine Bar in Walsh Bay. Limited tickets are still available for 49 bucks plus a booking fee at sydneyfestival.org.au and we'll pop a link up at fbiradio.com forward slash programs just click through to out of the box and if you were lucky enough to nab a spot in the ballot you will also be seeing Nabiha perform at Phoenix Central Park tonight which will be so special Nabiha you're leaving us with sinking by the one and only the cure what does this song mean to you this is the fifth track choice and you know you asked me to pick music that um that's like, you know, had some significance for me throughout my life and especially like, I guess, my artistic life. For me, The Cure have been one of my favourite bands since I was a teenager. A Forest was like my fav- my favourite song by them, probably still is. But the track I've picked now is called Sinking and it's actually a recent discovery for me. So I guess they've got like such a huge back catalogue that really, you know, unless you're going to do a deep dive on every single album one by one, it's quite easy to miss things or, you know, just come across them in at totally different times. So as a teenager, you know, I was listening to a lot of their work, but um, I just chose this because it's an example of like how you can be so into a band, but then like the feeling of discovering something new that you haven't heard by them before, even though you've been listening to them for like 20 years. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, I heard it not that long ago, and I just love like the way that it builds, that like all the sounds in it. Obviously, they're so good at creating like the most amazing like textural synth- synthesized sounds. And then I also, so when I discovered this track and then got really into it, then obviously searched it on YouTube as well and discovered this video of them performing it live at a festival in Germany, and it's just so amazing to watch them play it live from scratch. Um, so yeah, that's why I picked this track because it just, for me, it's an example of how a band like The Cure are just an absolutely ongoing source of inspiration for me.